0: If you want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. Today I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Bruce Damer, founding director and chief scientist of the Biota Institute. Bruce's work has touched on a vast array of topics, ranging from programming some of the first graphics user interfaces for personal computers, to asteroid mining, to establishing the hot spring hypothesis for the origins of life. Bruce has been a close mentor and friend of mine for the better part of seven years now, and to this day, he still always manages to surprise me with new personal and scientific insights. It is my hope that our conversation will confer to you at least a fraction of the benefit that I have gained through sharing thought space with such a powerful, creative, and dynamic thinker over the course of my career. Without further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Bruce Damer.
1: We're sitting on a very special couch here. Tell me about this special couch, Bruce. So, we are sitting on a $20 million couch, $10 to $20 million in 1980. <laughs> the famous uh, Cray Love Seat, the Cray 1S supercomputer from Lawrence Livermore Labs. And it was uh, used for atomic weapons development and for uh, probably Excimer Laser. Yep. And there are four of them at Livermore, right uh, here in California. And if you watch the movie Tron from 1982, you'll see Jeff Bridges and the girl running behind a unit that looks like this. It was actually one of the twin units and the power distribution cabinet back here. And so this was sort of the cray from or a cray from Tron from that era.
0: How did you end up getting your hands on this? And why did you want to get your hands on this in the first
1: place? So this is sort of the the ultimate computer collectors piece right there they made 71 of them we think and uh there's only one in private hands uh well actually now there's two in private hands this friend of mine sold his to a museum back east but this is the only cray in a private home or a barn in this case (laughs) the digibarn the digibarn computer museum so uh, in the late 80s, I did one of the first graphical interfaces on PCs. Right. Uh, working with Elixir, a company, a, a small startup, and with Xerox Corporation. So we took the Xerox Park and Xerox Star stuff and put it onto a PC uh, so that corporations could have a graphical interface with Windows and icons and stuff to do all their electronic printing.
0: So can we hey, – let's unpack that for a moment.
1: Um, what – What is
0: so the Xerox Park GUI GUI. graphics user user interface? Um, Well, actually, let's just start here. What is a what is a GUI? What is a graphics user interface? Because a lot of kids these days, my age, grew up with GUIs our entire lives. So,
1: so so computers uh, had before, say, Windows and the Macintosh. They had a little command line. You type things in like copy files and read mail or. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a black screen and glowing characters. Think war games. Right. You know, uh, sort of teletype interfaces. And then they went to full character screens where you could use a cursor to go and edit a file. But it wasn't until Xerox PARC invented the graphical interface on the Alto computer, which we have upstairs here in the Digibarn, which we just restored and it's working at Boots. 73 chips replaced. A whole team, and it now runs, and it runs as though it's Park 1975, right? Height of the disco era. It thinks that it's 1975, and convinced. And there's a little little Raspberry Pi thing that simulates the entire billion-dollar research facility of Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, so that when the Alto reaches for it, it thinks it's logging in. It it thinks it's Saturday Night Fever. It thinks it's so it runs the trek game and the bravo x word processor which became word later okay so everything on the the alto became like steve jobs saw this alto in 1979 when he visited park right and they took all that ip and made the lisa and the macintosh right in, in 80 you know, 384 and because xerox only commercialized it to large workstations not for home computers. not really, no, no, no. They they, they didn't grok home computers. Right. Yeah. And uh isn't this contentious
0: as in as in first first of all this so this is where Steve Jobs gets the idea to have to have
1: graphics Windows, interfaces. Pull down menus, folders, icons, exactly which he, none of which existed
0: before Xerox Park.
1: No. No, And so,
0: and so he sees he gets a tour, right? Uh, he if gets, I understand the t- story, he gets a tour of the
1: park. Yeah, Adele Goldberg, who was a researcher there, was ordered to show him the Alto with small talk, a, a graph object oriented language, which Steve really really jived with. Yeah, and uh, when they walked out of because they were a small investor, right? So when they when they walked out of park, he was like on fire, and it was time to make this machine. And Jeff Raskin had. Uh, actually started the project in 1979. Steve took it over in 1981.
0: Were there legal issues surrounding this IP? As in, was Xerox okay with the fact that Apple took this idea and ran with it?
1: There were, there was no ability to uh, protect software in those days. Hmm. And so what happened was Daniel Kotke, who was the first employee at Apple, he worked in the garage. Uh, he had in his basement. This is back in the 90s, we discovered the original Macintosh business plan. Yeah. In a stack of stuff and it was written by an Apple employee who snuck into Park and booted up an Alto and used the Bravo X word processor and the Paint programs and everything to make the Apple business plan to describe the Macintosh that they were going to make. And he th- this person uh she Made pull-down menus and everything to do the look and feel in the document, mm-hmm. and if that had come to light in the 80s, courts would have adjuncted against Apple and, and said you know it's direct industrial theft. Yeah, but it wasn't until like the late 80s, early 90s that you know uh, Xerox pursued anything, and the court said, well, you just you didn't enforce your IP; it just walked out the door. You know, good luck. Right. So a trillion dollars of of value. This is not only the graphical interfaces, the Ethernet, email, networking, all the applications, everything. So the the modern lifestyle we have today is based on this Alto machine upstairs. And this this guy is uh, different. There's a spider. He's got a little spider there. Yeah, I just... uh, so, that spider is far more complex than this this Cray, of course. <laughs> this is a monster machine that does vector processing. Right. And it it um, is made up of these individual boards for your your listeners and viewers, which if you pick that up and hold that, it's very oh, heavy. Oh, whoa.
0: I was not expecting the weight, on the heft on this.
1: So, it's a copper plate, and the chips are mounted directly on the plate so that heat can be pulled out of them. And up and down these water-driven channels to cool the machine. And this was Seymour Cray's genius. And Seymour Cray happened to be a Trekkie, that means a Star Trek fan. I mean, that's the old Star Trek. Yeah. So I got connected with William Shatner, actually surrounding the time of the Spaceship One launch, because Shatner was out at the launch and we hung around with him. Right. And he was making a documentary on how Star Trek changed the world. Mm -hmm. The old Star Trek, because you had, you know, the communicator, like the cell phones you flipped open. Uh, You had body scanners in the old Star Trek. And you had a talking computer that you talked to, like Siri. And you had personal computers throughout the Enterprise. And so they made this documentary. And they shot here for four days. And they had me in my most tricky like fancy outfit in here and then I beamed in to this machine because it, Seymour made this to look like a piece of Star Trek it does so, doesn't it so you're sitting it's like the warp core or the transporter unit it looks just like it it really does and you're sitting on a Naga hide bench and Nagas are extinct now so you can't you can't this.
0: make a Naga hide anymore you can't
1: make a Naga hide anymore so uh this has been in the film uh, the documentary called How William Shatner changed the world it's on mm. History Channel. It's also on, on the web. You can find this,
0: and this was cooled by a weird material. If I remember correctly, it wasn't just it wasn't water. What was what was it? Uh, by?
1: Water. Uh, just the, water. The cray around the corner is cooled by a um, a CFC uh, called. Oh gosh, what was it called? It's um, heavier than water, four times the mass of water, and it's bubbled through the machine. The cray two. the, the cray two? This is yeah. just the cray. Yeah, this and is the original fl- cray. The cray the two is around the corner, and it's cooled by fluorinert. Mm-hmm. Um, which that's right. That's yeah, what it floor was. Inert.
0: Yeah. Wild. Wild. And so, and so when, how did you get, I mean, how does one even get the opportunity
1: to buy one of these? How did this end up it's in your hands? It's all in, uh, intense demonic o- OCD type of focus. So in, in 2000, 2001, I was building the collection. Right. And I just networked with everyone. and I mean, was to the extent that Steve Wozniak himself donated you a piece? He donated a, a lot of documents here. And there's actually stuff donated by Apple's legal department, the founders of all these companies. Uh, it's pretty cool. And the, the link from Lincoln Labs MIT mm-hmm. is here, and it's it works. Yep. So that team restored it. The first personal computer in 1962, the year of my birth wild um wild. and is this is this still a collection that people can come see it is by appointment and it has to be kind of either a good sized group or somebody from history or somebody who really has a passion because i just i used to run summer tours and barbecues but it's it's a lot of time totally yeah so um well maybe maybe someone maybe some group of people
0: or sufficiently interested people will reach out yeah um but we won't uh i won't it won't advertise too strongly on that
1: yeah it's it's uh, you can find all this stuff on the digibarn.com website as I well. see There's tons and tons of resources. Very cool.
0: Um, but getting back to your work um so you're working with elixir on this graphics user
1: interface mm-hmm. what what where were you and how who was that team? Kind of. So can you unpack that? There? It was a team of sort of renegade people in Southern California like four or five of us and how old were you at this time? I was just out of my master, so I was like 26. 26. Something like that. Yeah. And I had fallen in love with the Xerox Star when, when it came out in 1981. Which is a computer? Yeah. And it was Xerox's commercialization of the graphical interface at the time. It was on the cover of a magazine. This is 1981. 81. And we, would, we had been working on DEC PDP machines at our college in, in Kamloops, BC, Canada, way up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And a command line and a little bit of graphics, and then I saw this cover, and I, oh my God, there's folders and icons, and it. it's a, it's a sandbox for the mind. You mm-hmm. can address individual pixels. You can do anything on the screen. And six or seven years later, at Elixir, I was able to build that whole thing from scratch. So,
0: so how how does that journey go when you're starting at a blank terminal? Yeah, and you hack your way. Having folders, icons. Yep. I mean, this is this is to me unimaginable, and I think to a lot of computer scientists who start now. I mean, it's, it's to me it's as revolutionary as going from machine code to a terminal. Is mm-hmm. going from a terminal to a graphics user interface that opens up the computer to everybody. And and this has never geeks. been
1: seen before on PCs. So Windows was super primitive. In in the late 80s, nobody used it. It was like a shell interface. And really, Windows exploded after 1990. So from 1987 to 90, I built this whole graphical look and feel, working with professional icon designers. There are very few of them in the world. And I had to figure out how to make a pull-down menu, how to address a a file system. There's no stack overflow for this at this point in time. No, no tools whatsoever. So (laughs) it Any image handling, any font display, any uh, hierarchical folders, editors—everything has to, you have to build yourself because you just you just have that blank white screen of pixels. And we had the GEM interface to the terminal, but that was about it. And it could do little dialogues for us, but otherwise, I built everything from scratch. And pull-down menus were tricky because you painted. You painted them quickly and you had to save a piece of the screen underneath so you could clear it by snapping the image in a bit operation to clear them faster. You couldn't just, they had to be quick. Windows could paint. You could draw them out. And, and you had to do it pixel by pixel. What was the difference there? I don't think I quite
0: understand the subtlety.
1: So if you're moving your your cursor along, the pull-down menus have to go pip 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 really quickly.
0: Right, they have to open up fast,
1: fast and Be responsive, responsive. Fast. or else it feels really. There's only one way to do that on on a basically a 12 megahertz IBM PC with 640k RAM. Uh, you, you have to do these tricks of storing uh, image memory from the screen back into memory, and then then banging it on back onto the screen. It was all this strange strange thing. So you don't have, have to,
0: a cash miss and have all these
1: Yeah, you, you, you can't just paint it back out. Right. Paint right. You, you you steal the screen underneath the the pull down and you snap it back. And so you save a version of it, store it in RAM, so that it can
0: RAM. So why do you have to store it in RAM? Maybe we can do a little bit of quick computer science lessons for 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 the listener at home. Why why store it in RAM? What even is RAM? Why are we
1: using RAM RAM, instead of just storing it in a hard drive? Because you've got a a ten megabyte or thirty megabyte really slow hard drive underneath you Mm -hmm. on a DOS machine, and it's slow. Right. So if you're going to store anything to it, you're people are going to wait forever. Mm-hmm. And you've got so little memory to play with. I mean, you the application that ran the desktop interface was 300K. The entire environment was 300K, and then the applications would be loaded, and there's no multitasking, there's no debugger, there's no libraries of any sort, there's no internet, there's no one to reach out to ask for help. You just have to code it all from first principles, including what is text and how can you produce a font and the the bitmaps for the characters and you don't have any tools you have no you have no windowing tool you have no pull down tool nothing so this seems
0: overwhelming right? It, it's, it completely sounds overwhelming, um, but it's clearly a problem we're solving. So that's our first F mm-hmm. in our four Fs is finding a problem worth solving. Yep. Clearly getting to a GUI, uh, having a graphics user interface that allows people who aren't computer experts to use a computer yeah. is an important task if we're going to make this technology extensible to all the rest of humanity. However, it, it's just such, such a mind-bogglingly difficult task how do you how did you frame that for yourself how did you get yourself to make it tractable i mean if i was just, yeah. if you were to sit me down today and say um you know you'll be executed if you can't produce a right. gui in five years i'd say execute me now i'm not going to be able to produce this gui well, maybe I, I don't trust myself enough here so
1: i was like 24 25 years old right we just work 12 hours a day six seven days a week and then Uh, Very disciplined about the containers, like the uh, information hiding. I was trained by a very brilliant computer scientist in how to make robust code because there was no protected memory. The code could write over top of the OS easily. So super disciplined design up front, modular design. There was no uh, C++ was all done in C. There was no object-oriented system. Right. So you just are, I built the graphics and font editor first to get my chops up, built libraries, and then I built the graphical interface layer on top of those same libraries. Can you talk about libraries and why that was helpful?
0: Like why build these libraries? What's the, how did that help you bootstrap this thing up into existence?
1: So for a year, I built all the libraries. My, my company was patient enough with me. We'll start here. What's a library? It's a set of s- subroutines or now they would be services you would call in a network. Mm-hmm. Uh, subroutines that said, draw a box, pull a character out of a font file and place it on the screen at this position, uh, track the mouse, or uh, uh, open a file and read the contents. There are little snippets of code
0: that yep. you've written to do a function on you know to perform a task on the computer mm-hmm. that can be strung together to perform more complicated tasks. Yeah. Because you're going to have to build display a box a ton of times. Yeah. When you build when you build uh, uh you know windows that you're resizing and moving around the screen. So by having a function that just builds a box for you, displays a box on the screen, mm-hmm. now you can call that function, which is in the library. Each library consists of a bunch of functions. Tell me I'm getting this wrong. Um, You can call that function and then have it produce that result um, for you. So instead of having to rewrite that little string of code that says build a box every every time you want to
1: build a freaking box. And if you only have a few tens of kilobytes of available memory, you have to every single command in the program counts. Right, because every, you don't have
0: time to, you don't have space to lose. You on don't have space to lose. Program.
1: Each version of my software generally, it was smaller. Right. So the code size got tighter and tighter and tighter as time went by. Right. But it, it it's it's a massively complex. In, in in So in the Macintosh side, Andy Hertzfeld did the look and feel of the Mac OS. Mm-hmm. So at that time, you know, I was probably one of five people in the world that were building from scratch graphical interfaces. Mm-hmm. And there's been no one doing it since. So, if like, the last one that was done with the smartphone interfaces on iOS. Right. Things like that was large teams, and that's it. I was probably not going to get any more. You made this point on Joe Rogan, by the way, years oh, ago,
0: and it was it was um, it was a point that I think wasn't necessarily fully well received. So I'd like to give the the opportunity to ask this question, this line of questions again, which is you're saying that a lot of you've said before in our private conversations that um, a lot of technology, a lot of computer technology, is just. Legacy code stacked on top of legacy code stacked on top of legacy code. And then, in fact, things have gotten slower and worse over time. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the conception is, oh, well, we have so much more compute power. But a lot of that compute power is slogged down by using really bad legacy code stacked on top of legacy code. I hope I'm presenting your position, and please clarify if I'm not.
1: So if if you all think we're going to the stars, think again. Because if you're running a server and I... I learned to my horror again as we were rebuilding our sites in January. It's the same crap from the late '70s in all the Unix implementations. So you you log in and you're doing command line things to keep your websites and everything else going. Yeah, and it's cumbersome and primitive under there because they never got rid of it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually pear shaped people that are sitting at consoles keeping the internet from just going down. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, basically Terrence McKenna was wrong. There's never going to be a singularity. Ralph Abraham is right. The whole thing is just a house of cards. Right. And so the, uh, when smartphones came out, there was an opportunity to do something from scratch mm. and and really rebuild and make it more robust. But it's still, I mean, your phone still freezes. Right. You know, nature never freezes. Cells don't just freeze and stop. So singularity, never. Um the, the sophistication of, of computers is so limited, and it's limited by our own, our own ability to program, but the model that you're seeing behind me and every one of the hundreds that are here go through something called the von Neumann bottleneck. Mm,
0: I, and, I thought we would come to this. Yes. Here we
1: are. So, So compute is like an hourglass. You have the hourglass. And the top is full of sand, you flip it over, and then the sand has to find its way through one little narrow thing and drop down and create the new pile of sand. And so that's like the process you're doing, and then the display screen and down there. And it's just happening fast enough that you think all those sand grains are being handled at once, but they're not. They're Mm -hmm. being queued up and going through. And When I did my PhD thesis 10, 15 years ago, I went to a place called the Institute for Advanced Study, This was at at Princeton. At Princeton. And met with uh, Pete Hutt and Freeman Dyson. Right. Freeman just passed away a, a year or so ago. Yeah. But through them, I went into the archives of John von Neumann, who was one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century. And he had worked on the atomic bomb and things like this. And he, after Los Alamos they came to Princeton to do the real revolution for humanity, which wasn't the atomic bomb, it was automated computing. And he created the first, with his team, a computer that didn't need external plugs to program it. It was all internal, it was a cybernetic machine. the, the instructions and the data and then the results were all in the same memory system. Before people were punching and moving wires
0: around in order to create a new circuit to do a given yeah, computation. Yeah, it,
1: it took three weeks to set up a 30-minute calculation on ENIAC. Right. So uh, the electronic computer at Princeton, the, sort of called the ECP, was launched in the summer of 1953, and it was a revolution. It it And they gave away the design. They open-sourced it so no one could could IP protect it. And in that machine, one of the first programs ever written was Niels Barrichelli's symbio organisms. He was trying to create little Conway's Game of Life, little organisms that would go and be run, little, little state machines. So we got to do it
0: then. If we're going to talk about Conway's Game of Life, we have to actually talk about it. So what is Conway's Game of, so Game of Life?
1: It's a little program from the 1960s where the nearest neighbor of, basically little cellular automata that, that do things based on what's going on near them. So
0: let's, 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 do you mind if I go ahead for a moment? Yeah. So imagine a grid, right? You have a grid and each grid can either be, it's like a screen of pixels and each grid can either be point, can be off or on. And you can then, you can then decide for the next frame in the movie, If this is a screen for the next frame in the movie. Will each pixel be off or on? and it will be off or on depending on whether it's neighbors are off or on. Mm -hmm. And you can create a rule set for whether a given pixel will be off or on in the next frame. So far, so good? Am I getting this? Yeah. So now you have, now we have, a movie that plays forward. Us uh, mathematicians like to call it a time series. Conway's a mathematician. He would probably call it a time series. Mm-hmm. Also, we lost Conway, by the way, this year to COVID. Oh, we
1: did. Yeah, oh, we did. Gosh. We lost mm. John
0: Conway, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and he hates to talk about this subject, apparently, because people always ask him about Conway's Game of Life, and he wants to say, check out my surreal numbers. This is the really interesting thing I've done in his life. Right, so right. if you want to know more about John Conway to the audience, check out surreal numbers in the surreal number system, which is uh, it's a, a trip in and of itself but um back to Conway's game of life you now have this time series this frame of movies um or these movie frames of whether the pixels are on or off
1: Mm -hmm. but what's
0: interesting about that movie that gets generated by this rule set conway invented
1: all kinds of patterns form and behavior and stuff that people read into it like oh there's 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 sort of streamers and things that are moving gliders and stuff like this and it was picked up later uh by our friend uh the Mathematica founder. Um, Stephen Wolfram. Stephen Wolfram sort of at the Institute in the 80s sort of took it to the next level. And Wolfram proposed that the entire universe is like cellular automata at the lowest level. Which by the way, he's proposed a huge
0: theory on this now. You've seen this? Mm, mm -mm. His his attempt at a grand unified? Oh, he
1: has. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so new kind of science and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, So, but in 1952, Baricelli tried it on the ECP machine. Running in the what's now the old schoolhouse. And I read through von Neumann's papers and I've read through his papers. And he talked about the difficulty of basically what became known as von Neumann's hourglass or von Neumann's uh, bottleneck. Bottleneck that he had to break all of the scene of these simulated organisms up into frames and then he had to feed them through this one processor. And if one organism sort of crept, out of frame to the next frame, he had to synchronize and do that next frame, and the boundary problems—it becomes a whole mess. Right. And so my PhD work was exactly about this: how to simulate trillions of atomic encounters in a in, and do it in a frame-based way. And as I we discovered that stochastic hill climbing was the way that things complexified, uh, but I threw my hands in the air saying computers are just so restrictive they can't do natural systems very well and this is yeah. what von neumann also concluded in the 50s
0: and this is why in order to get any computation of any sufficiently complicated system we do all these sort of tricks that prevent us from having to think about each individual element you know i i think um i think that um oh, not not to take over here but now i'm now i'm excited i'm, at, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in my wheelhouse a little bit yeah those types of things that i'm more used to studying um is that you know? Von Neumann called the uh, called the study of complex systems the study of non elephants, mm-hmm. uh, meaning it's everything else that isn't easy to study. Because in physics, early on, you're dealing with single particle interactions, you're dealing with individual interactions between things. But as soon as you get to the three body problem, yeah, you already can't solve it. It's already chaotic. It it's already is in Ralph yeah. Abraham's world, right? Yeah, and then. The interesting thing that happens is once you get to enough interacting elements, while you can no longer think about the individual particles, you can no longer think about the individual pixels in the in, in the and, and predict longitudinally what will happen. You can do these weird tricks like mean field theory. Um, You can apply mean field theory and all these statistical mechanics tricks to talk about the average evolution of the system. Mm -hmm. And that's where you end up with thermodynamics and statistical mechanics is through these, these tricks. They simplify the computation, but you give up knowing the specific state of a system in order to understand the statistics, the likely future states of the system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to give something up to learn anything about these sorts of systems. And part of this is because we just can't, you know, part of this is this computational issue that you're talking about where um, where computers really are not good at, I mean, clearly the real world has no problem simulating Mm -hmm. a pot of boiling water. It just does it. There's no computational issue. Yeah, yeah. it happens. As you say, uh, the boiling water doesn't – Oh, it was, freeze is a bad word, but it doesn't halt the computation or get stuck or be slow. Yeah, yeah. It
1: happens. It just, it just falls into existence. And this is sort of tying back to several things we're working on with Origin of Life. Right. So Alfred North Whitehead proposed a different physics in the 1920s, and it became known as process philosophy. Mm. And it, it, where everything was sort of time series moving forward and that, things would actualize out of and become subjective and then project their data sort of into some general field. And similarly, Deschardins had this idea of the noosphere. So this is one of the branches that's coming out of our origins work, as well as another branch into AI, which has to solve hard problems. So AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, as defined by Ben Goertzel, who was just here last week is a tough problem because AI is mostly doing things that this machine was doing. It's doing a shit ton of... Natural matrix, processes. Uh, yeah, fast uh, matrix algebra yep. and deep neural networks and whatnot. Very, very brittle systems. So AGI saying, yes, we've got pattern recognition because of stuff that came out of these boxes, but that's never going to get us to general cognition general cognition you've got this multi massively multivariate brain huge amount of connection with the environment whatever consciousness is whatever the flows are and it's more like a hypergraph it's more like you know neurons are like graphs that either are weighted and they're they're sometimes cut they sometimes amplify it's like a graph upon graph upon graph it's not Matrices is not matrix algebra, right? So, in the open cog system, they're going to do the next version of this new hypergraph. And it turns out that the hypergraph that they're coming to intuitively for general cognition looks a lot like at the origin of life, lipid membrane polymer interaction that we're starting to realize had to be there for life to emerge highways of lipid with polymers traveling on them look like a hypergraph. And this is what came up last Sunday, sitting with Ben here up in our camp. It's like, wait a minute, it's the same thing. There's a general principle here that for anything to emerge, there has to be a deeply nested, deeply interconnected, stochastic uh, graph system that's flowing, not like Conway's Game of Life, but far more nuanced. For intelligence consciousness to emerge and for life to emerge, it's, I, I call it the progenitor model. That which is the workshop in which things can emerge. That has all these random moving parts, has all these encounters, all these tries, and that that's the that's the soup that actually things emerge from.
0: So um, let's step this back <clears throat> to for a moment. The Origins of Life. Starting again. Stop. Okay. I'd like to step this back there because you've hinted at it now and maybe it's a good time to just kind of tell that story um, because you've been embroiled in what might amount to somewhat of a, some might call it a scientific controversy. Mm -hmm. Some might call it a paradigm shift and uh, that is surrounding what we believe are the origins of life. So can you tell me the... Before you tell me about your side of the story, mm-hmm. it might be useful for us to do an intellectual Turing test if you're familiar with the concept whereby you emulate what a what maybe one of your opponents uh, in this field, mm-hmm. uh, or at least mm-hmm. not opponents, but um, those who disagree with you in the field to put it lightly, mm-hmm. would say about how life emerged on this earth. Um what what is the before the pre-Bruce paradigm mm. um the pre damer damer hypothesis
1: paradigm for uh for the origins of life. So there are three players in this drama that are all still with us and very very eloquent and making their case. One of them is named Albert Branscombe. He's just retired. He's a wonderful fellow up in Washington State. The other is Mike Russell, who's the father of the alkaline hydrothermal vent uh, scenario, where people might know that in 1977, the submersible Alvin went deep down under the ocean and found these black smokers, these immense plumes of three, four hundred degree water coming out of the ocean floor, and but surrounding them was life, uh, tube worms, and obviously Everything was feeding from chemicals because it was very dark down there. But it was uh, fishes and all kinds of things that were adapted for those ridge-based uh, vents. They later found uh, white smokers, they call them, because they're they're off axis and they're a little alkaline and they're not as hot. And then, so Mike Russell and John Barras and a number of them proposed that, well, uh, you have this environment of rich uh, chemical redox sources you have temperature gradients pH gradients potentially and it's forming these mineral towers it's, stuff is growing there even if there wasn't life it, these these towers these chimneys are forming and perhaps in the chimneys are little compartments that uh, could fill and concentrate with things and that what Branscombe and Russell point out is we need a continuous supply of organic compounds to form the building blocks of life. Organic just meaning carbon um, containing carbon, for those at home. So fixing CO2 into things that become, say, HCN or uh, methane or uh, be- the building blocks you'd need to to form amino acids, for example, yeah. which are the, then the building blocks of proteins. or nu- oh, no, uh, For n- nucleotides. Nucleotides, ribose, and things like this. Which then get turned into
0: proteins at the...
1: So what What they, they would... Their their whole thing was we found a natural factory that has basically uh, energy supply and proton gradients and things like this. Streams of this stuff should be pouring on a continuous basis, becoming more complex, becoming encapsulated, getting together. And this is obviously the way life can start. And uh, so Nick Lane is a third player in this because his, his world is energetics. Uh, he's... He's a wonderful researcher at University College London. And he, uh, in meetings that I had with him a couple of years ago in London, he said, I've got a gradient, I'm trying to use it. Now, their proposal is, therefore, if you look at how life works, you have these, what's known as the proton motive force or chemiosmosis or something going across membranes. And you have a huge amount of energy being liberated by in in pores across living membranes because where there's a gradient
0: there is energy that there, can be extracted from that gradient
1: yeah and so since all life is running watts of this energy transfer. Mm-hmm. Therefore, to get life started, you need to have a system that's already doing that, that, right. that job. So it
0: must already exist somehow. Yeah. And it makes me being generated by some sort of energy source.
1: Yeah. And so it was a very, very attractive idea from the 80s when it was first proposed and, and all the way to like 2010, 2012. And then the cracks started appearing. Uh, and various colleagues started publishing challenges to this because Here's the fundamental challenge. It's called the water paradox, so the water problem, right. uh, enunciated by Steve Benner and saying, wait a minute, we're chemists. You know, most of the proposers of the alkaline hydrothermal vents were most, mostly geochemists uh, who love water, water-rock interaction. They just live for that. But the chemists were like, uh, what happens to the reagents? You've got reagents and they're in an aqueous solution and that creates... A rundown to equilibrium. If we had, if we had those reagents in any vessel vessel in the lab, and we're heating them, we're getting the things to happen. After the experiment, they're breaking down. They're running down. I mean, where do you go from there? There's nowhere to go from there. Can you talk about equali- the
0: equilibrium and the rest of this? Like, can you talk about just what is a chemical equilibrium? What just is- for a moment, you put a bunch of reagents in a pot with some water, and then it re- eventually reaches this equilibrium. What What is that? What's so, that all about? So,
1: for example, you drop uh, a little uh, cube of salt you know, or sugar into solution, and suddenly all that energy is pulling apart this crystalline structure of the salt, and everything then becomes salty water to the taste, and that will stay that way forever. Right. And the, that salt cube will never reform unless right. there is some mechanism which in this case is obvious, is dry down the solution, water leaves and it pulls together the crystal again. That yeah. creates, creates that force. But if you're in salty seawater, in the bottom of the ocean, anything that forms is going to come apart. Right. And your body, the trick that life learned how to do was we're, we're full of water. We're bags of water. And stuff is breaking all the time because we're in this semi kind of semi salty solution called our bodies, and but we have enzymes to to fake fix the breaks and to manage. The hydrolysis to manage all that attack from water molecules. And so water's breaking everything down,
0: but we're always rebuilding. We're always as re- the water's breaking down. In fact, we're we're able to some beat that water breakdown. We're down.
1: able to beat the water paradox because of active energy-driven en- enzymes. Because you need energy to stay away
0: from equilibrium, right? You need, you need energy
1: just, to stay away from equilibrium.
0: You, you don't input energy; you drive to equilibrium. You input energy; you can now you can now drive to something
1: else. Uh, unless can, the energy is the water, which is breaking you down but it has to be directed energy turned into work
0: which as a i guess as a i think a useful physical just so people have a physical system in mind if you take a pendulum and you knock it it'll go back and forth for a while until the air resistance slowly brings it to its equilibrium position of being still stationary and pointed down Um, But if you are to keep driving it like a spring, Mm -hmm. um, you have something like a spring that holds energy or, um, you know, with the classic grandfather clock, it's a weight that you put up that's slowly pulling down. Um, You're able to drive that system Mm. um, and and keep the clock ticking, keep the pendulum going. Um, Of course, eventually you'll run out of that energy source, but there's so much energy in this universe. That's not something we really have to worry about at a practical level um, here as living beings. But... Point being is that all these, um, it, whenever you want to have a system, a chemical system uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. drive down to its equilibrium, down to equilibrium, doesn't use, you know, become entropic, doesn't break all the way down, uh, you need some sort of energy input. And in and bodies, that's
1: ATP or GTP. Right. And so our colleagues... is a chemical, by the way. Our colleagues in the vent community, we call them, mm-hmm. uh, were constantly proposing mineral cavities... And energy gradients, none of which have ever been demonstrated to work, uh, in in laboratory vessels, and certainly they've never done experiments at in the ocean itself. It would be inconceivable. Mm. So the the chemists in the community were, were pushing back and saying, no, that we nothing. No products will ever be produced in this environment. They'll dissipate into the oceans. The rock pores that are being proposed in these. You know, kind of notional drawings in the articles do not—they're a thousand times thicker than the pore of, than the membrane membranous uh, boundaries of cells. Mm. So you're not going to get you're not going to get that uh, proton motive force working there. And a lot of it's just hand so, waving. So your
0: energy goes away. So if you don't have this gradient, then your energy. You,
1: yeah, and you can't, and then products that are produced, it's inconceivable that you could get to polymers, to long polymers, which you need to get to. And in presentations that I gave in London with Nick Lane's group, and I—I I finally hit me because a student asked, why are polymers important in the origin of life? And I realized they don't understand biology. So, so the problem they're trying to solve, which is the emergence of the first cell, which critically needs a boundary to concentrate reagents, but it needs polymers to store information and to fold and to do functions.
0: So, so I'm going to ask that question because while while, while it seems like an incredible incredible question to ask, maybe to us from our perspective, sitting here and having worked on this um, together for for a while, um, it, it's it's maybe, maybe it's not it's not a question to scoff at, and it's a question that we should we should ask. So, mm-hmm. for the viewer at home why
1: are polymers
0: important for the origins of life?
1: Why do we care about polymers? So in the hydrothermal vent community, they don't talk about polymers at all. For them, it's all energy and metabolic cycles that could be driven, but they don't even consider uh, the path to life. So they're just trying to get a few organic compounds to appear in solution. And I, I realized at that time, they're not even working on the origin of life. They're working on prebiotic chemistry in the most early stages that it can come which is the fixing of carbon but they do not consider at all the path to the living cell
0: right they're more looking at it's more of a geochemistry it's a experiment.
1: geochemistry experiment and in fact uh, in Mike Russell's new article where he in a sense it's a requiem for his life's work he's i think he's sort of saying okay uh, we're being he's being criticized so much or uh, Hydrothermal vents. He wrote this article, this massive article, critiquing all the critiquers, right? And it, it really signified the the shift, the paradigm shift. And he, um, uh, for the first time, writes about uh, a lot of things that, like polymerization being important, and he kind of admits it, really. That uh, anyway, that's that's a subject for so, more detail.
0: So 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 we have this camp. We have this. this um, uh, Let me summarize here. So we have this camp of people who believe the ocean origins hypothesis, the alkaline thermal vent hypothesis, which you'll hear on most pop science media that you mm-hmm. read or mm-hmm. listen to, it'll say life began in the oceans. It happened in these hydrothermal vents deep in the sea, where there's a bunch of organics coming up, and there's heat, and there's gradients and energy, and that's where life began. This is, I think, the con- this is kind of the standard mm-hmm. acceptable theory. If you were to say this at any biology conference, everyone would nod. Their heads in agreement, not think you're too, not think you're too interesting. They would say, "Yes, you hold the scientific standard opinion on this, mm-hmm. and that would be all well and good." But of course, interesting science doesn't happen by constantly holding the standard scientific mm-hmm. opinion. Um, you can't advance by always believing the same thing you did last week. Um, that's the, the, that would be the antithesis of scientific advancement. Um, and so, um, but not not every new idea is a good idea either. Um, so now we have your camp, which so, so, it believes so something Kuhn, a little
1: bit different here. So what you see is when Thomas Kuhn described this in 1962 the the scientific structure of scientific revolutions book mm-hmm. he talked about what will happen in science is you have a building crisis within a dominant paradigm yeah and the crises that are unaddressed they pile up to the point where it breaks the paradigm and, it, and then it shifts. This happened in geology. Uh, In the mid-1960s where there were five or six schools of thought as to how mountain building worked, how, how volcanoes formed, how basic geology worked on a planet. And behind the scenes coming up was Wegener's Continental Drift plate tectonics, which people screamed and railed against at these meetings. Uh, but it was a general purpose explainer of all of the geological processes, including why Africa and South America fit together. Yep. Because they were separating. There was mid, and and then the whole thing, there was many, many crises in the competing hypotheses. And then data started to come in. And in the late 60s, these guys took a ship and they, they basically sailed across where, where they, a part of the Atlantic that was predicted there would be ridges. That if, if the ocean floor was spreading, they would uh, have a magnetometer that would, as as the the, you know, the magma came out of the lava came out at the ocean floor, it would freeze in a in a position where the magnetic north pole was at the time, and so they would see a pattern, a butterfly pattern of equal magnetic response on either side of one one boundary, and they they found it. So that was. There it is. The ocean floor is being created by this upwelling material, and it is spreading, and, and the continents are moving apart. Yeah. And it was the huge thing that, that she did the paradigm shift. And in our field, it happened relatively rapidly as well. So, there was a crisis building up to around two thousand. 10, 12, with the chemists in the field saying we just can't stand this thing. It it it's an environment where we know we could never make prebiotic chemistry work. You can't make a polymer. You can't make can't get to polymers, so you can't get to evolution because you need a prevolution, a pre-evolution to to kick start the origin of life. You need a system where you're making lots of polymers at random, and some of them through selection, through going through a barrier, are going to emerge as the polymers that actually do a job.
0: So, so let, let, let's, let's hit this again. We, we didn't answer it, so we'll, we'll bring it back. So why,
1: why is the polymer important? So everything about life uh, comes down to uh, the actual sort of business end of life. Everyone knows about an RNA and DNA. Mm-hmm. And you've got to store blueprint instructions for how to do things in the cell. Right, both how to reproduce the cell and how to run it on a moment-by-moment moment basis. And that's right. mRNA reading off of DNA. It goes out to a thing called the ribosome and it cranks out these things called proteins and enzymes. And those float off into the cell and they're the, the home depot of tools that do jobs in the cell. Right. So in order to do all that, you need these ticker tape molecules of great length with specific coding sequences, with specific building blocks and specific orders. Right, instructions for how to build these proteins that end up doing work. And then the proteins fold in certain ways based on how they're made up and they do really cool jobs. They form pores, they chew stuff up, they break things, they join things. They're functional. That's what we like to say, that they're functional. They're functional. That's the whole game of life. So to get to those things working together, you need to make a lot of polymers, mm-hmm. keep them around, and then subject them to a kind of, not really a Conway's game of life, but a, a another sort of a game called combinatorial selection, where you say, here, here's a whole bunch of polymers. They're random. We don't know if any of them are going to do a job, but we can put them through a filter that will select the ones that do the job. Which is natural selection. Which is, uh, in, in this case, uh, combinatorial selection, because... <laughs> In the beginning, you don't even have a template. You don't have information to make copies. You just Mm -hmm. have a shit ton of random things. Right, combinatorial selection. This is a very good distinction, actually. Yeah, and Um, so combinatorial selection has to be set up in order to get to those first functional polymers because it's a long way between the flimsy random sequence of the first polymers and a cell that's able to crunch itself apart to grow and replicate things and repair things and then divide. It's it's a chasm of evolution that gradually boots up life, service by service, app by app. So this might be a good
0: time to hit the RNA world hypothesis and just state what the RNA world hypothesis is and why it matters. So in
1: 1982, Thomas Check uh, discovered a thing called a ribozyme, which is a bunch of RNA, which isn't DNA and it's not, proteins but an RNA that can both code information about its own sequence and do a job. And these these ribozymes became he he won the Nobel Prize for this. But these ribozymes people then realized Gilbert in his article a few years later proposed that hey, we have one polymer that can do the job of both information storage and functions. And so perhaps that was the necessary Swiss army knife with all the tools necessary, all packed into one molecular type structure that could have booted up everything around it, right? And and so that was a, a predominant hypothesis. And then 1993, uh, Bartel and Shostak at Harvard, they made random sequence 300 base pairs long of RNA, and they put them through a column with sticky beads. And after, I think it was a few weeks of running this back and forth, flushing through, uh, they found a, a set of RNA that could do a job, could actually ligate, could actually stick one thing to another, because they thought, they felt that the sticky beads would select the ones that were good at sticking and then breaking off uh, just through combinatorial selection. Because it,
0: anything that didn't stick then broke off got stuck permanently. It,
1: got, it was able to stick to other things more effectively. So it was like playing a game. So were they, were they selecting the ones that were on the sticky beads or the ones that got through the sticky beads? The ones that, that were on the sticky beads. Uh, okay, so see. So they became stickier and then they became able to stick to other RNA and created elongated RNA, so-called ligation. So let me see if I understand the experiment. You start with a bunch of RNA polymer randomly generated
0: RNA polymers. You run them through this set of sticky beads. You take your sticky beads, and you keep all the RNA. Yeah. that
1: you select that, so they they've that, selected so those do, go back. to
0: feed in. Do they get regenerated? You 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 sequence those and then generate them again. I think they did. Yeah, I think so they did you, a so, kind of
1: PCR. On so you
0: them. put put you sequence them. You figure out what what worked. And then you run it through again, and you do it over and over and over until you end up choosing
1: the RNA. An efficient efficient ligator.
0: Right. One that sticks really well.
1: And And then they start sticking to each other. Yeah. So then they grow in length.
0: They get longer.
1: So that's one little function of a biological polymer. And it was so breathtaking. It was was millions of times more uh, amplified than you would get just expecting this to rise at random. right? And and so, that selection. So, this has become an entire field called molecular evolution, Mm -hmm. where you don't have life, but you've got polymer populations able to be evolved. So, it's evolution before life. Right. Yeah, and it's an entire field now. So, in 2010, 2012, the field was like making such progress around the RNA world, which couldn't work at the hydrothermal vents, because they can't even get to RNA there. Mm. Uh, there's no compartmentalization possible because membranes cr- collapse in seawater. Because a salty seawater. If you if you try to wash your hands in seawater with soap, which is kind of some, similar to the things that form your cell membrane, it just you can't wash it in seawater. It all just turns to curds. And so there was a, a paper by Armin Mulkagenian in PNAS that pointed out that Um, that the internal composition of cells is more like a hot spring, an anoxic hot spring, than it is the ocean. Right. And that cells are actively getting rid of uh, the kind of sodium chloride concentrations, trying to get back to more of a hot spring, freshwater environment. And then there was John Sutherland in the same year showing that ultraviolet chemistry could make some of the building blocks to get to nucleotides. So you needed access to sunlight and energy source. And of course, Dave Deemer and his whole team and lab showing that wet-dry cycling could get the monomers of RNA together and form those those ribbon molecules.
0: So let's, um, let's jump back briefly and see if I can summarize this RNA world hypothesis thing. Mm-hmm. So the reason we like RNA, if I'm understanding correctly here, is that it is both able to do what proteins do in the body, which is carry out functions. You're using the example of the ribozyme, for instance, or they can they can actually do things. They can catalyze reactions just like proteins do. And then also they can store information the same way DNA does. And so RNA does what DNA does and it does what proteins do. So you can kind of dispense with the need for proteins and DNA At the early stages of life and just exist with RNA on its own but you're saying also not just RNA on its own RNA encapsulated in some sort of a Mm -hmm. lipid membrane Mm -hmm. so what are lipids and what
1: is a lipid membrane? So lipid is sort of like soap or uh, what we find and this is another discovery by my colleague Dave When they took pieces of the famous Murchison meteorite, which fell in 1969 on Australia near the town of Murchison, Victoria, when he ground that up into a powder and put it into a buffered acid solution, he saw membranes released, membranous material. So this is material from an asteroid? From an asteroid as old as the Earth, actually older than the Earth. So this is the material that would have been raining down on those proto-volcanic continents right. 4 billion years ago, enormous number of fully formed amino acids and sugars and lipid compounds from space. So, why do we care about these compounds? So, our colleagues in the hydrothermal vent world are trying to make those from scratch in a difficult, challenging environment when they were raining down from on the sky from the sky in abundance onto the land surface so you skip you skip the line here no longer do you need to make all these fancy chemicals they're naturally, naturally existent and they self-assembled in space as stellar systems form in planetary systems and that's been confirmed by the missions to the comets you know where they see that 50% of the blow-off material from the uh, Rosetta mission the comet that they visited is actually organics so before so before the thing was
0: gosh all these chem- complicated organic chemicals where do they come from on earth how did we make them and the actual answer is, well, actually, all these things that we think are super complicated chemicals are naturally occurring naturally inside occurring. of comets, asteroids, and, 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 and asteroids, which would have been raining down upon the ground of Earth back before life began.
1: And in in also, when in a planet, this is new work by Ben Pierce at McMaster University where and others, where you have a big impact, like asteroid impact, which were pretty frequent tends to boil off parts of the ocean, and it changes the atmosphere. And then the atmosphere becomes a chemically rich soup able to support hydrogen cyanide uh, chemistry, HCN chemistry, which is critical for the creation in the atmosphere itself of pure feedstocks of of compounds. And we see this in Titan. So if you look at this, this... Moon in the outer solar system with this heavy haze atmosphere. A no. moon of Saturn? Moon of Saturn. Yeah, so Titan is. So, and in uh, in the Titan atmosphere with the photochemistry that's happening there, you have this raining down of vast quantities of organics and HCN chemistry going on. We can see it. So, in Mars's early history, Venus and Earth, it's proposed that these impact events created temporary uh, occasions There were hundreds of thousands to millions of years long where the atmosphere became generative of organic compounds and created what Dave and I are creating a new term called urability, a world that is capable of supporting an origin of life, not Mm. just habitability, which is a world that could support living organisms that were introduced. So urability, so the urable world where um, origin world. Mm. So then you have huge abundances of of material falling and if they fall on the oceans they become dilute and lost to chemistry right if they fall on land they just like little puddles when you're walking along and you see a puddle that has a concentrated material around it as it dries down that's the key that's the spot where the lipids get together with the building blocks of polymers and can form the little compartments we call protocells in these small warm little ponds which Darwin himself wrote about Charles Darwin in 1871 that he thought that life began in a small in a warm little pond somewhere he identified how it needed sources of energy it needed phosph- phosphorus it needed these compounds and then what would happen this is in Darwin's letter to TJ Hooker he says that a protein compound would form uh, ready to undergo more complex changes. So, in this 1871 document, he nails it. He identifies a polymer forms able to undergo combinatorial selection, able to get more complex and grow in length, not, not get broken down to equilibrium. Right. And so, this was right in front of us for 150 years almost. The field, this prediction by Charles Darwin himself, but the field went away from that. So the field is really returning to Darwin's warm little pond. Only in our version, it's a hot little cycling pool driven by pulses of water to give us that periodicity we need. And these things exist, right? These pools exist. Now, what,
0: what, uh, what would be one of our viewers, what types of sites would uh, one of our viewers be familiar
1: with where you could see one of these cycling hot pools? So Yellowstone National Park is a, is a big one. Uh, so, you've got that, you've got uh, any hot spring anywhere, generally not tide pools because you're in salty, Salt. cooler environments, uh, subject to the loss of material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it would be fresh water, uh, often associated with volcanism. So, Iceland has them, Hawaii has hot little pools. We do a lot of work in uh, New Zealand. North Island, New Zealand, and Rotorua has a tremendous number of hydrothermal systems, all different pHs and different chemistries and and there's interconnected pools by their thousands, persistent for thousands of years in some cases. And so these pools are like a complexity landscape chemically. Mm. So thing happening in one gets washed or blown as a dry film into other pools. And you have this grid, like Conway's grid of complex spots that can support The evolution of the proto-evolution of all the building blocks of life.
0: So what you have here is, and so so just like in the experiment, um, the experiment uh, described earlier with the sticky beads, now you have um, polymers being selected for. So in the polymer during so there's two phases here, right? You have the wet phase and the dry phase. So you have it when when the water comes up because the pool fills up, mm-hmm. and then when the water when the water goes away and it dries down. And during the wet phase, the polymers are able to move around and jiggle around and bump into each other. Um, but of course, the issue is is that since the water's there, the polymers can break apart, mm-hmm. and and they do break apart. In fact, that's the hydrolysis side. But if they're able to be protected by a lipid vesicle, by, by a lipid on the outside, they can survive. Um, that round dry mm-hmm. back down, mm-hmm. and then uh, actually, actually, they don't bond together during the wet phase because they can just move around. They don't actually bond together because the water is preventing it. But then, when they dry down, they can link up with their friends because mm-hmm. they they actually link up by a process called dehydration synthesis. Um, and then when they and then when they, um, but and and so every round, the the polymers that do not find themselves inside of a lipid vesicle get killed. Yes. Water.
1: Yeah. So you have water is the first predator. Yeah. So here's the, the the fun thing about all this. We're still doing it. So live today. We woke up this morning. You got up in the bus. I knocked on the bus. We we put coffee. And I was sleeping in a bus this morning. This is the in, this is the reference this is here. Northern California. So here's a bus on the on, on the property. The I, the guest house. <laughs> and and so what we did was we fed our bodies with an influx of raw materials and, and energy that the cells can now pull in and metabolize to to fix breaks and repairs and stuff. So that by the time we go back to sleep at night, uh, we've done some work that could get the next set of, you know, go get the groceries again. Mm-hmm. So life is constantly in cycles. And in the protocellular world, what happens is if this dry film of, of a bathtub ring of layers of lipid, uh, and in between are the building blocks of polymers and a bunch of polymers, their friends are all there. Mm-hmm. You know, Either a dew drop hits it or a flush of hot spring water, which helps with the chemistry, gets in there. It buds off trillions of compartments, some of which have polymers in them. Yep. And the job that those compartments have and those polymers have is to stay stable, stay together. So the polymers attach to the membranes, and they make a kind of stable thing. And so they're doing their they're having their day. But to be clear, the good polymers stabilize it. The good polymers The polymers it. that fail to stabilize die. Yeah, cuz what'll happen is the, the the thing just falls apart. Sometimes right. these these uh, they fall apart and and then the the polymers that didn't do anything are just like breaking up and they're flushed out. Right. And so then the, the population that returns stabilized their vesicles by mm-hmm. definition. So they're doing the handprint of life is there already stabilize the compartment you're in, get to to elongate or reproduce yourself, and then go for another round, and you get to be around. So how do you reproduce yourself? So that's a challenge. That's that's a tricky one, right? That's a tricky one. So in the initial systems that we've done in the lab for a decade and now in hot spring pools themselves in the environments, uh, we're only seeing stabilization. So we see larger and larger groups or populations of random sequence RNA because all form. the
0: ones that aren't aren't long enough to stabilize and aren't stabilizing are being selected out. They're just being, like just like this experiment with the sticky beads, they get taken out of the system. They no longer exist. No More longer, random polymers show up, and the ones that survive keep yeah stay in the system.
1: Yeah. So so we don't even know. I mean, in a sense, just the presence of a polymer within a vesicle uh, stabilizes it. Mm-hmm. And 10 times longer than having just empty vesicles. Mm. So it's like a naturally self-assembling system. It self-assembles both the polymers and the compartments and the properties are, are emergent from that. And what we think is going to be next is more structural stability. So what if the foot of one of those polymers attached to the membrane creates a little squirty transient pore which allows things in and out? a little easier. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a pin stuck in a pin cushion, you create a little gap in the fabric. And that itself is a prototypical biological function, but it also helps stabilize things. Right. Because when you're drying down, you get higher concentrations of things and they will tend to blow up those little bubbles. Mm-hmm. You got to let them out. You got to let stuff out. Right. It's called osmotic stress. So those first few steps toward... More stable protocells will lead to a system where polymers uh, uh, are selected that do the ribozyme thing. There's a little section that allows templating, that allows the replication of that one polymer into another copy of itself. Right. And once you get the first replicator, now you have populations of specific species of polymer in the system, and you could actually stop your cycling at the 20,000th cycle. Because you're noticing there's a lot more protocellular material there. And, you know, pipette some of that stuff out, put it in a nanopore sequencer, and then bingo, you've you've got a species of of polymer that is doing a job. The argument is that if it
0: can happen randomly, then given enough time, it will happen. And then you'll end up with a replicator that is also stable. Yes. And once you have a replicator that's stable,
1: you're done. It's life. You're, well... You're, is that you, right? Am I You you have tell me where you've I get this demonstrated moment. a core capability. Mm-hmm. So life is a long way. The origin of life is a continuum that may have had some, trillions of starts and failures and distribution of material back and forth. Hey, look at the guys are here. The dogs are here. The dogs are, the dogs are speaking of life and replication.
0: Re, re, I guess resummarizing here, now you have um now you have a replicator, uh, potentially, you have a stabilizer. And once that system can uh, produce this thing called an autocatalytic set, you end up uh, kind of propagating forward through time. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. might be being too complicated here. Can you talk
1: to me briefly about what an autocatalytic set is? So that would be when A produces B, which produces C, which produces more of A. Yeah. That's, that's, a good ex- that's an example S- of that. Stuart Kaufman's work, for example. And what we think is uh, we should be able to actually introduce little protoenzymes into these cycling protocell systems and, and witness the emergence of these sets. Right. So we can jump the queue again, so we don't have to wait for the random sequences to sort of learn how to do it. We can just introduce right. like a 50 mer here and a 100 mer here and in substrates and see if they impact protocell stability which is another field that's actually happening. A lot of researchers are doing this. Jack Shostak at Harvard and 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 then see the growth of our population, the, the emergence of the progenote that Carl Woese described years ago. And we can do it with synthetic biology and watch it. And we can make the argument that those introduced uh, sequences were likely in the combinatorial landscape of trillions of random sequences. They are likely to have been plausibly emergent. And you can do that with a pretty pretty reasonable back-of-the-envelope calculation mm-hmm. and say, look, there's
0: enough enough tide pools with enough little pockets. Not tide pools. Not huh? tide pools, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, hydrothermal pools um, with enough uh, little pockets that the, generating enough polymer material that you should end up with one of these autocatalytic sets emerging mm-hmm. and once one of these autocatalytic... If you can show that there exists an autocatalytic set, you can figure out if it's an existence proof.
1: And, and then if an autocatalytic set that's very inefficient, it's rickety, it merges over here, and then another one that's slightly more efficient that does a different product over here, they can get together because materials wash from one pool to another, or the dried film version of that, which is a preservative, Mm -hmm. spreads genetic or molecular innovations across a landscape in a stabilized form in dried film, flakes, which stromatolites... You know, that microbial communities still use that as a distribution mechanism today. So this is this is your geological evidence for this being reasonable. Can you talk about stromatolites briefly? So stromatolites are fingerprints in the rock. They're like ripples. They can be conical, domical, you know, domes. They can have different morphologies, and they're layers of microbial mat community up to three and a half billion years old. We find them in Australia, South Africa, that were laying down in, in uh, sand grains. They were, they were sequestering sediments, gluing them together, and then growing on top. So, if they're being overwashed by sediments, they would grow up through them and create a spongy photosynthetic layer. So, they tend to grow these large structures. And stromatolites are evidence for all environments we see on the earth as far back as we can look. Aqueous environments, marine shores, lake shores, and hot springs have been found. and what we see as far back as we look is communal complexes of microbes. So what we think the origin of the stromatolite or the microbial community was an earlier form of community, not individuals in competition. Right. Because to be in competition, you have to have complex tools to right. compete. They, it was deeply collaborative, known in the field as microbial consortia. And so the earliest form of life was a a aqueous uh, wet dry cycling system of protocells that had developed certain evolutionary adaptations to stay around, but they were constantly mixing with other environments, other pools, other settings, and sharing in a massive form of horizontal proto-gene transfer, Mm -hmm. is what Carl Woese predicted, across a landscape such that the entire thing jacks itself up toward more robustness, better energy collection, better replicators, better, better, better against massive degrading forces like tsunamis and impacts and UV exposure. And, and this system had to climb through a kinetic trap through uh, proto-evolution toward the robust microbial community that was able to survive for 3 billion more years and generate us. Because each polymer can be thought of as an as an individual, um, but
0: then no polymer on its own can form an autocatalytic set. Right, and so you so there are basically I think four types of interactions that you can have between organisms or individuals. If you want to think about it in evolutionary terms, which is the positive positive, which is the um, which is the synergistic or what do they call it? Um, it's it's the it's uh, it's symbiotic. That's the symbiotic relationship. There's the parasitic, which is which is negative negative-positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there's the negative-negative, which is the antagonistic. Um, I believe it's called antagonistic um, relationship. And then there's like negative-neutral and positive-neutral, which are, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I have names, but I can't remember. Nothing's totally and neutral.
1: Most of the game would have been positive-positive. Well,
0: negative-negative in- would have killed
1: both things. Would have killed if they were both robust.
0: things. And positive-negative probably existed. Um but, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, and, and essentially here, what is a cell other than a bunch of positive-positive interactions between individual you, polymers? You can
1: have positive-negative if... So, the if you step back and you say, instead of protocell-to-protocell protocell competition, what we see is a mass of protocells and networks uh, in, in a huge network system, the hypergraph. Yeah. And if something competes with another thing and takes it out, blows its membrane up and... The material's not lost to the colony, right? So the competition doesn't have a net negative on the colony's robustness. It's just what counts—the niche that is growing—and so it favors niche construction and niche evolution on a massive scale. Group selection, even though you have localized competition going on, you don't lose material
0: because some of the material gets spread throughout the.
1: It gets digested, and and so you don't have a net loss of those those precious. you know, monomers. And this is how Richard Dawkins talks about how kind of the, the, in the selfish gene, you could
0: think of it as the selfish polymer, that you can actually still have um, emergent um, emergent positive-positive interactions even in a fully selfish system where each polymer mm-hmm. only really care, quote unquote, cares about its own subsistence and existence and continuation and propagation through so time.
1: Circling back to Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer uh, challenged his use of natural selection yeah, uh, in uh, the se- the first, even the first edition of On the Origin of Species. And so uh, Darwin adopted this term from Spencer, uh, survival of the fittest. Because Spencer said, well, that natural selection implies a selector, it implies a god, when this is not a, this is an automated emergent process. So survival of the fittest was adopted later on. That went into sort of social Darwinism, it went into economics, uh you know, red and tooth and claw, and it was the inter- the interpretation by Victorians of the the Serengeti plain of winner take all kinds of things. But what they didn't really uh, appreciate was that on this, underneath the Serengeti plain, was a progenote, was the massive microbial colony that grew up into forests and trees and grasslands, which was deeply synergistic and collaborative, mm-hmm. supporting the grazers above that had you know, hunters that were hunting the grazers as a parasitic kind of a thing, animals. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't interpret uh, biology and the human future and civilization in solely those terms. They have to, in a sense, see that the Earth or Gaia is fundamentally a massive self-regulating, collaborative sharing network system that allows the privilege of life like us but that it's primal, and that you have to see all of evolution and all of biology and all of culture in that frame. What mm-hmm. if you kill the substrate that maintains you, which part of our natures is cutting off the limb that we're sitting on? Yep. To kill the prerogative of sharing clean information, you know what I call PIM. Probability is shaped by. Uh, clean interactions and good, reliable memory storage and retrieval. And if you've got, if you corrupt your memory, your cultural memory, your blueprints, yep. and you break and make untrustable interaction with the the I and the M, then you lose the ability to have a future that you can bring into being, or you you have a probabilistically unpredictable future. Right, and you can crash your civilization. So this is like what we're right up against now with. And this is your craziness. frame.
0: Oh, this is one of your main <clears throat> frames. So their second half here is like this is this is a frame that you use quite a bit. Is this PIM?
1: Yeah, and it, it, I realized one night, uh, just visioning into it, that the protocell and the collection of protocells represent uh, protocell represents probability shaping because it gets everything together. Yep. The collection of protocells. Which one can do one thing over here and give products through the the membranous you know matrix to another one over here? That's interconnection. So that's the spontaneous emergence of symbolic networking in the universe, which didn't, doesn't exist in the natural, in the physics universe. Mm-hmm. So the spontaneous emergence of interconnection. So you have got P that gives gives you I, and that within that the first templates to make copies of the things that do jobs can emerge once you have that network system.
0: And that's your memory.
1: That's your memory. And then when memory emerges, it jacks up probability tremendously, which builds stronger interconnectivity or interaction, which creates more memories. And then that thing cycles for 4 billion years, driven by sunlight, primarily by the sun, right, rising in the morning, giving us the sheets of high quality radiation and stacking up and pushing through the microbial world into the eukaryotic world and oxygen whiffs and all the way up to complex plants and animals. And it's still at, at, it's the core kernel running at all scales in all processes, uh, all the way down to uh, enzyme action on, on, on membranes, all the way up to culture and the creation of smartphones it's all one thing that is generating it all and it's all driven by this continuous cycling energy input and we're now on a 4 billion year tall potential gradient and if if you know anything about potential gradients in high school we like to roll down them we like to roll down them It's like we're taught that if a ball is way up here and there's a ramp, it has potential energy. And if you just kick it one way, it'll release that energy. What if we're in a probabilistic potential energy gradient of uh, 4 billion years in height? We're so unlikely. We're so far away from equilibrium from a place like Mars that there's, in a sense, a pull-down force that's constantly operating. We're at high risk. You know, with one push of launching nukes, we could have been gone. Right. With one uh response to a pandemic that isn't correct where the whole civilization comes crashing down. So the risk-reward ratio is extreme and it's climbing and climbing and climbing. And but it's an energy we can tap into because in the middle of all of it, because we've improved PIM, we've improved smartphones, have have made us, you know, we we, we got through this whole thing with COVID because we had a network. Right. We had a new nervous system. And we had M, strong M. We could do our science and we could read and write databases and communicate so we can survive against the onslaught of the next pandemic and the next one, the next one. And we have probabilistic power to survive as a species and burst through potentially spreading life beyond our earth because of this. It's all PIM again. And it, and we can take advantage of all of that. Even as our world degrades, uh, we can punch through and we'll do the the fundamental prerogative of life is to make copies of itself, to lower its risk, and we'll make a new earth. And that would be our job uh, from uh, to honor the hard work done by protocells and planet formation and the stacking of these Im- immense numbers of organisms is to give life a path into the cosmos. And in our next
0: conversation, well, I, which I hope to have maybe in six months or a year from now when I come back, um, we should talk about your vision for how you can make that happen because we've talked about that before.
1: And we'll see the tiny bubbles again, only bigger. <laughs> same same principle. <laughs> Happy to do that, Mason. Looking forward to it.
0: All right, thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Solutions. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe on YouTube as well as share and rate on Spotify and Apple Music or wherever it is you get your podcasts. We're on all platforms. I'd also love to see you on our Discord community where we discuss previous episodes after they've been posted. So there'll be a discussion section for this particular episode, where you can ask any questions you might have about the contents of the video or anything else going on in the solutions world or anything else solutions-oriented. We also have a Patreon now, which you could subscribe to if you are of financial means to do so. And finally, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. This is Mason Hargrave, signing off.